Hello and welcome to Show Me The Money, the podcast that looks at the business side of movies and TV. With me, Jess Robinson, and the gorgeous Stephen Follows. Hi Jess, how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. I'm, I'm gearing up um, to my week of previews before I go off to the Edinburgh Festival. Ooh. Yeah, so it's lots of um, line learning and uh, song learning and impressions perfecting and um, worrying. How about you? How are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm really worried about your show. Um, <laughs> now, are, these, are these previews designed to get feedback and stuff or is it about getting the word out there or like, what, how do they go well? It's They go well if I turn up, I know what I'm doing. Uh, it feels more and more comfortable each time I do the show and more and more like I'm running the show and the show's not running me. And <laughs> that uh, people are enjoying themselves and the bits that I think are funny are working. And then and then you do, like I'm, I hopefully won't change too much. I don't want to have to have a big overhaul, but if bits need tweaking, then we can do that. So yeah. Well, fingers crossed. Yeah, I filmed my deep fake Olivia Coleman the other week, and it was really cool and exciting. So I'm I'm very excited to be, um, yeah, sharing the stage with Olivia. <laughs> <laughs> sure, she's. Have delighted. you had a good week? <laughs> um, yeah, not not a bad week. Trying to avoid the heat, but you know yeah. that's uh, impossible. But um, but yeah, not too bad. Not too bad at all. Oh, good. Well, our first story this week is uh, rising inflation is hitting Hollywood. Um, Tell me about this. Yeah, it's one of those stories where there is uh, something is changing on one side, but it's actually not being able to have an effect on the other. So normally when things right. get more expensive, people do fewer things, right? So mm -hmm. you'd imagine as the movies get more expensive, the studios or streamers or whoever are not making as many movies or making, are making sort of um, cutbacks. But they mm -hmm. can't really do that because they need so much content and they've really committed to it. So there's this crash of economics happening and it's it's just sort of creating on top of normal inflation mm. there's just even more so for example a lot of the things we're talking about here are the what we call production so the the, the actual physical side of making films so a lot of issues with lighting gears and things like that and even transformers yeah. but not not the big transformers um <laughs> not the, the sort of world crushy sort of <laughs> marky mark ones uh these are the tiny little ones and uh, but they're an essential part of electrical equipment and um, one of the things, I mean, there was some people quoting prices that I read about where they've said, look, these things normally cost about two and a half thousand and now they're costing about six thousand dollars each. Uh -huh. So that is a lot to go up. And, you know, a lot, of, a lot of these sort of really key things are sort of in some cases doubling in costs because people are just saying, well, there's so few of them and it's supply and demand. And so all of these construction costs are just going through the roof on top of all of the extra costs that are with COVID. Um, and I, you know, there's still very big COVID departments, which means more crews, slower filming, more money. And uh, people are sort of quoting between about five and 20% extra on budgets for COVID. So that's quite significant. Once you say, you know, your budget might cost a fifth more. Um, mm -hmm. And also then you can't get all this electrical equipment. So you have to either slow down your shoot or you have to pay more money. Costing, you know, making these all this content is becoming quite prohibitively expensive. And yet the bosses at the top are like, nope, you still got to create the content. You still got to push it out there. So um, I, it might, 
it won't turn into a, a crash of some kind, but there might be something gives way and some, uh, maybe one of the streamers says, you know what, actually we're going to use this as a sneaky excuse to cut back because some of them are having a hard time financially. Um, or it might just be that it, we get sort of almost hyperinflation for a brief period uh, because no one's willing to back down. No one's willing to sort of stop in the game of chicken of just paying whatever the, the suppliers are quoting. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a sort of another side of what we were talking about uh, last week or the week before about the skills crisis. And, you know, the difference here is that you can spend more money to just fix the problem because you can just outbid somebody else. But um, that will drive prices through the roof. Um, right. So, yeah. And you think about like, so all these, there's a limited supply of these things. There's general inflation in, in the world and then hype, and then sort of maybe not quite hyperinflation, but there's accelerated inflation in the industry. And then Disney is spending about 33 billion on content. Warner is spending 23 billion. Netflix is spending 17 billion. Like there is so much like pressure. If you think of it like a like a river coming down towards this dam of inflation. And so we'll have to see. I mean, I, I read some stories of people who construction crews on films uh, scavenging from other buildings uh, with permission. But like there was a building about to be um, demolished and the film crew went, oh, can we go in there? And, and they managed to get all the insulation and the light fittings and things as that was the only way they could make the movie. And that's a studio movie. Wow. So strange, right? Yeah. You tend to think that actually making the movie is the easy bit once you have the script and the and the budget and everything. But even with the budget, they can't do that. Um, but it might also accelerate other things. Like, have you heard about virtual productions? No. What? So virtual productions is not in a computer. It's not like sort of <laughs> like a computer game. What it is, is hmm. um, imagine a big soundstage, but all around the edges and the ceiling and the floor are TVs. LCD TVs, and they, there's no join between them. And if you plug that into a super, super fast computers with good graphics cards, you can show any background you want and any sky and any floor. And they've got to the level of quality where you can't tell it's not real. And when they move the cameras around, everything moves correctly. It's called parallax, you know, where it's not just, you have to basically, when you whip the camera around, everything has to warp slightly so it looks, it makes sense. And that's how they made the Mandalorian. As right. the sort of flagship thing. So they have some props or sets in the foreground mm. so that the characters can interact with them or because that's harder to, you know, the closer it is to the camera, the harder it is to fake. Yeah. But the background is just a set in a computer. Right. And yeah, and apparently during some of the Mandalorian stuff, they um, invited some of the execs down from Disney to come and have a look at the set. And initially the the, the execs were, were really annoyed. They said, we, told, we thought you said you weren't going to build anything. And they were oh, like, really? no, we haven't. Look again. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and it's so clever. And, and also, the other thing it helps with the Mandalorian is because his helmet is all shiny. Mm -hmm. So you can't, it's much harder if you have a green screen or a fake, you haven't built the studio set behind the camera because you'd see it in the reflections. But if you're in this sort of completely like dome of computer screens and it's big enough and good enough quality, it all reflects properly and it all looks good. So yeah, that, that actually, that's happening anyway. And that's mm -hmm. saving a lot of money because you don't have to go out to deserts you don't have to build impossible worlds especially in sci-fi because you can imagine you especially if you want like to walk through a spaceship you don't have to build the whole spaceship but this crash of physical production issues with all the construction inflation costs might speed up and say well actually this cutting a technology of virtual productions was really expensive but compared to how much it costs to get transformers not those transformers uh, and mm -hmm. wood and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff maybe we'll do more of that so it's interesting that the pressure in one part of the industry might push it into another and um, we might see the sort of a technological update, you know, speeding up. Very interesting. I love that. Uh, 
are the sets that you guys so you work on more sort of comedy stuff are the sets a little more uh, rickety um i don't know if Perhaps. i can't find the right word um, what was the last How thing that the i sets? worked on yeah actually do you know what the the last thing that i worked on i'm not allowed to say what it was but because it's not out yet and it we don't know whether it will or not be fingers crossed <laughs> anyway the people that were making the sets had to make them look like certain tv programs and mm-hmm. that went from big shiny floor sort of Saturday night entertainment programs to um, people's living rooms. Um, and it was incredible, incredible what they could do, what they could whip up. The attention to detail of these amazing people. It, I really found it just absolutely, I was so, 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 so impressive. So yeah, I think there was a little bit of green screen stuff as well, but actually it was mainly completely physical and um, it was amazing. It was so cool. So I'd be, yeah. I kind of, yeah, I'd, I'd be a bit disappointed if it was all sort of grease, green screen and minimal. Yeah. It has, it's it fun to feel a- like you're in it. I think well, that's one. Of the, but that's one of the things I remember reading about um, uh, Sir Ian McKellen on the set of Lord of the Rings, where he was doing whatever day it was. A lot of many after many days of working just with a green screen and nothing else and a tennis mm. ball on a stick, and he started crying and saying, "This isn't what I got into acting for." Aww. So the yeah, I know because it's all it was also done on the computer. Whereas virtual production, you see it on set, so you can react to it. But mm. it is not the same as exactly as what you say, where you're actually in the world or in mm. the game show or whatever, and you can do a better job, I presume, as well as seeing the amazing artistry that you're talking about. I mean, it's just more fun, isn't it? I don't know if I do a better job. I'm probably a bit of <laughs> shit all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know. You've got to set it up. You've got to say that, oh, it's absolutely essential for my, my craft. It my is essential. It's essential for my craft. I, do you know what? I love it, and I love the people, and I and I think it's very important. I do. It's essential well, for my we'll craft. See, essential for your craft. Well, yes. Well, it's, we'll see how these things change. As, as always, one thing uh, has an effect that bumps something into another part of the industry. So maybe, you know, the, the cost of making things physically will make things go digitally and be better faster. Um, or maybe it's a blip. We'll mm-hmm. see. We'll Interesting. See. So our second story is, and I'm really so not um, surprised about this, uh, but you can tell us the ins and outs. Queen made an absolute fortune from the Bohemian Rhapsody movie. Of course, of course they did. Yes. Right? Uh, oh, they did, but the story, as always, as you've learned with this show and with the industry, is always a little it. bit more complicated. Yeah, there's always a little bit more to it. It's never never straightforward. So, yeah, it was made on a, on a sort of mid-sized budget of $55 million, which is mm-hmm. not huge considering how big the film is, but... Um, now the people, the surviving members of Queen were involved in the actual production and the development and stuff like that. So it's possibly not surprising that the, you know, that the story was sort of very pro Queen. It was a sort of quite a gentle biopic, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like you know, it's a fun film, and I think that it, it came out certainly on the sort of um, a lot of the streaming platforms at a tough time where everyone wanted more interesting content. You know, we want mm. more. What's the right word? Uh, comforting stuff so it's not like a, a brutal biopic it's a sort of quite gentle fun film um and so it, it grossed sort of 900 and something million worldwide uh, dollars mm-hmm. so 910 million dollars that's right worldwide so it's the biggest biopic of all of all his, movie history and we don't no one announces how much money is is made in a film we know how much money is grossed but we don't know how much is made but we have a few clues 
And one of them is that the limited company, the UK company that holds the rights on behalf of Queen, that's owned mm. by the people, so by members of Queen, that has to put its annual accounts out every year and say how much money they, that company grossed that year. And because that would have come from the music and the film, we get a good sense of what they're getting. So um, before the film came out, that company earned about 12 million a year, 12 million pounds, right. not to be sniffed at, <laughs> but that would have just been from um, the music. But it's gone up to about 40 million in 2020 and another 40 million in 2021, give or take. And so they're still generating three or four years after the movie came out, it's still generating around 40 million a year just for Queen, just for the collective them. So there'll be other people. And so, yeah, it's doing really well for them. And it's like you said, it's not surprising. However, Mm. um, so Mm -hmm. let's do, (laughs) let's see if we can guess this or not. Uh So the, um, the screenwriter, yeah. Uh, was entitled to 5% of the net profits. Okay. How much do you think he got? Mm. 7 million. I don't got. know. I'm pulling I'm pulling a number out of my ass. <laughs> um I don't know. I don't know why you're keeping 7 million in there, but that's fine. Um I'm very very expensive. He, he got nothing. And is suing the company because officially, according to 20th Century Fox, the film has lost $51 million. Oh. <laughs> wow. wow. That, 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 that groan went on a whole journey because it started with, that's outrageous. Wait, no, I know this is, oh yeah, okay, of course, that's what's happened. Of, of course, course that's what's it. happened. Of course they do. That's what they do. We all know it now. Mm-hmm. Oh, yep. God. But why do people fall into the bloody trap every time then? Well, I mean, I I don't know in this particular case. I, I mean, this is well known. I don't think that, you know, when when the writer got 5%, mm. they must have thought, well, we've protected it. And they've got, it's it's actually quite well defined. Like it's 5% of 100% of the of the defined net proceeds. And that sounds pretty good. And yeah. you'd think, and it was as modified in good faith negotiation. And you're thinking, okay, fine. And it made so much money that you'd think that even if they tried to hide some of it, it would still leak out. But no, officially, um, this was <laughs> a... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that it was last November that he he filed. This is uh, Anthony McGarden. He filed um, a, a lawsuit for his five, some of his five percent. He said, "Look, yeah. on a film that costs fifty-five million, that's just gross nine hundred million, but you say it's lost fifty-one. It just it, he, the case there is like this is not credible. Yeah. Come on. And it's possible that there's some like um, some shenanigans going on, but probably the shenanigans happened at the point of signing." And so, and and Queen would have been, let's assume that everything is above board and everything is legal, and we're not saying it's moral, but let's say it's exactly as everyone says it is. All it means is that Queen were earlier in the recoupment chain than the writer. So um, whatever percentage Queen got of what percentage of whatever else it would be, um, they just were first. And so they could get all of their money out and be like, oh, look at our money. And um, sit there counting it, rubbing themselves. And I'm not sure what people do with money. Um, but the writer was just after that and there wasn't any left. And in fact, it's minus by um, almost the entire budget again. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, I don't know if I, maybe I've ruined you for signing new contracts because now anyone that. says... Well, oh, do you know what? <laughs> I don't even look at them. I just sign. If my agents look, I'm so trusting, I don't even look. I just go, terrible. Well, maybe all I've done is just make you more pleased when you do receive anything. Yeah, yeah, you just make me feel really grateful. Oh, no, it's terrible. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, um, I don't know. We'll have to see with the, with the court case because I, hopefully, I mean, this is a bit sort of morbid. But from from my point of view as a, as a watcher, I really hope it goes to court because loads of documents will come out. And there'll be loads of testimony and all that stuff. And we get yeah. to see behind the scenes. Almost certainly, there'll be it'll either be thrown out straight away because it's as simple as um, no, he signed, he signed something, and yeah, that's just yeah. you know what I mean. He's just he's not happy, but he's but they're not wrong. Mm. Or they'll give him something to shut up, and because um, nobody wants it to be expensive and take a long time or information to come out. So um, I probably won't have the fun I want, but um, I also want everyone to be happy and get the money. But I don't feel there are many sort of victims here on a grand scheme of things, are there? Probably not. <laughs> you just want it to be a good episode when it all comes out, don't you? Oh god, it would be such a good episode. You know, when when they when these things get litigious and and people start making statements and releasing mm. things, you just think, oh, this is great. You get a sort of uh, a, a look behind the curtain of how all these things work, and it can be so useful and revealing. And it happens so rarely when it mm. comes to detail that it can be really useful. But I appreciate that's on top of a lot of misery from a lot of people. That's the exactly lawyers who how I feel about well. the Housewives of Beverly Hills. <laughs> so you don't watch it then because you think it's manipulative and wrong. So you just oh, mm. <laughs> oh uh-huh. no, it's not how I feel about them. Um, so <laughs> it, this next story is this um, another sort of legal shenanigans sort of thing? Tell me about it. Disney could soon lose the exclusive rights to Mickey Mouse. Is this really going to happen? It sounds a bit clickbaity. <laughs> well, actually, bizarrely for the industry, and even more bizarrely for us, yeah, it's exactly what might happen. <gasps> and fu- even even funnier than that, it's the reverse. Uh, rather than there being clever shenanigans, it, this is because they can't do any more clever shenanigans. Oh. So there's this is to do with copyright. So copyright uh, in the UK is created whenever you create work. In America, you have to register it, but it exists for a certain period of time. And so the idea is that when you create something, you should be able to profit from that because you're, a, you know, you've brought something into the world. You've perhaps spent a long time developing it, but for general purposes, for the sort of human experience, we shouldn't have things that are protected for all the time. So most things like books and characters and things like that are protected for a set period of time, mm-hmm. which, depending on what it is and where you are, is a seventy to ninety years. That sort of rough age, you know, and so. What that means is that, um, for example, all of Shakespeare is out of copyright, which means anyone can put it on and, you know, Dickens and things like that. Mm -hmm. But because these corporations have been around for a long time, we're starting to get to the point where things that they're quite foundational for these companies are coming out of copyright. And Mickey Mouse should have actually already come out of copyright. Uh, And yeah, and they've already been doing, shenanigans is probably a strong word, but they've been lobbying and getting the law changed. And so in America... In 1976, there was a change to the Copyright Act, which extended it to 75 years. And people often called that the Mickey Mouse Act, which I quite like. Um, And not because it was all sort of Mickey Mouse in a kind of like doesn't work kind of way, but more just that they extended it pretty much because of the lobbying from Disney. Mm -hmm. Um, But Disney can't do that anymore. So a lot of these, the early Mickey Mouse stuff that came out uh, in sort of the late 20s, that's going to come out of copyright. And anyone will be able to use it. However, it gets gets kind of complicated and kind of interesting. So it's this is in 2024, and it will be 95 years after the creation of Steamboat Willie, which was the first one, and then the barn yeah. dance and things like that. But Mickey Mouse has changed his appearance quite a yeah. bit over the years. Yeah. And each change will have its own copyright. So what it means is it's not that suddenly the doors are open and you can do anything you want with Mickey Mouse. 
it's that you could the steamboat Willie as a complete piece is is out of copyright. So if oh. you use any of the Mickey Mouse as he looked back then, then yeah. you might be okay. But if you used the modern incarnation of it, mm-hmm. it would be a problem. And we okay. we already had a version of this a while back when the Sherlock Holmes stories were coming out of copyright. But they came out of copyright in sort of two tranches. There was a load of books and then he was killed off and then he came back. Uh, and so any character characteristics that were in the latter books couldn't be were, were, were still copyrighted. And any of the characteristics from the early parts of the books, they were out. So we're going to have the same thing here where slowly more and more of Mickey Mouse as we know it will come into the public domain and we can create our own stuff. But so there's, so there's, so that's kind of complicated. And it's actually happened in with um, Winnie the Pooh already. Yeah. So Winnie the Pooh is, as of this year, out of copyright. So people have already been making unofficial Winnie the Pooh things. Yeah. And there is genuinely a horror film called no. Winnie, Winnie, Winnie the Pooh Blood and Honey. Yep. No, don't yep. do the that tra- to Winnie the, the Pooh. I mean, do you want to hear the synopsis? Yes, please. <laughs> so this is, uh, the film is yet to be released. It's going to come out this year. Feature film horror, a uh, feature net horror. The trailer hasn't come out yet, but the poster has. And it has got a slightly warped Winnie the Pooh because we can't use the red tunic and anything. And we can't use Disney's version of that because that's still in copyright. But the original books are out. Um, and so it's got Winnie the Pooh sort of looking kind of mean with um, an axe, holding an axe that's bloodied. And then there's below him, and there's a moon behind him, and below that there is like this scary forest with like a massive bear that's probably Winnie the Pooh in silhouette. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, tagline is, it ain't no bedtime story. Oh, God. Uh, and so, yeah, here's the synopsis for you. During his childhood, Christopher Robin befriended Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, and their friends, playing games and also providing them with food. As he grew, these visits became more infrequent, as did the food supply, causing Pooh and the others to grow increasingly hungry and desperate. When Christopher went to college, the visit stopped completely, causing them to become completely feral and unhinged, resulting in Eeyore getting killed at some point. Now, Christopher has returned to the forest alongside his new wife, hoping to introduce her to his old friends. This causes them to go on a murderous rampage for human flesh, as they antagonise a group of university girls who are also occupying the rural cabin. Lovely. So there we go. So that's the new Winnie the Pooh. Um, I'm not for multiple reasons. I, it doesn't sound very good. Uh, I'm not, I, Winnie the Pooh, I think, has a, a nice childhood memory, but also I, I, it's, it's just not my kind of thing. The but sentence, I, I do like the idea. The sentence Eeyore got killed at some point. What? At some yeah, point? The thing is that the film hasn't come out yet, so we only have the materials released by the filmmakers, and wow. they are that's probably their language. Oh, I see. Um, so we will have the equivalent of those kind of things with Mickey Mouse if nothing happens. Although it is, it does get a bit more complicated than that because what we've been talking about is copyright. Mm-hmm. And copyright, it, 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 you know, it expires, but trademarks don't. And trademarks are things that companies file for certain uses in certain countries. And so, for example, Warner Brothers own the trademark for platform nine and three quarters and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so... You, what we're probably going to find, because Disney have been preparing for this. This has been happening. They've known this for a while, and they've presumably decided that they couldn't lobby to get copyright extended anymore because it would just be so nakedly 
kind of corporate friendly that no, perhaps they thought it wouldn't happen or whatever. Um, and so they're, what they're probably doing is moving to trademark defense, saying, no, 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 this is a trademark we own, like the silhouette of the Mickey Mouse. Like that's probably quite defendable as a trademark. So I don't think it's going to be as easy, although Disney own Winnie the Pooh and there's no story yet they're going to um, sell, they're going to sue these filmmakers. And I think it will come down to what's called passing off which is making it look like someone's endorsed something. So if you, if you look at the poster for Winnie the Pooh, Blood and, Blood and Honey, there's no, there's nothing Disney about it. <laughs> and no one's going to confuse that with a Disney film. So right. whilst the name says Winnie the Pooh, everything else screams something else. Yeah. If this was a kid's project and the font was similar, then Disney might say, you know what, you're making it look like it's a Disney film and that's an mm-hmm. invasion of our protected rights and stuff. So... It's it's going to get really interesting because the company's making you know the content made in the late twenties and thirties is sometimes foundational to the modern capitalist you know content we have nowadays. Yeah, that's very interesting. Hmm. Are you going to watch it? Are you going to no, watch Blood absolutely and Honey? not. I would not watch that. I'd watch Mickey Mouse Cheese and Blood. But... <laughs> well, wait, hold on. Which is the bit that you're not approving of in all of this? Winnie the Pooh. Like... I love Winnie the Pooh. Oh, I see. He, my friend. It's the best character ever that walks around with a T-shirt and no trousers on like a toddler. <laughs> I love it. That's um, what you like. You like this called Winnie the Pooh and you like he's got no trousers on. Yeah, okay, it's funny. Now we're back to where I thought. Yeah, That's here good. we are. Um, so we have a question today from Patrick Quinn. I wonder if it's my friend Quinn Patrick, but no, it's probably not. Patrick Quinn. <laughs> um, he says, I love the podcast. It shines a light on some of the very dark parts of the filmmaking process. I'm a screenwriter, oh dear, and I'm, <laughs> I'm joking, and I'm getting excited by the positive abilities of Web3 filmmaking platforms like Decentralized Pictures, co-founded by Roman Coppola, for writers and filmmakers outside of Hollywood. I was just wondering, from your experience, where should these kinds of indie film financing platforms target their resources? And what piece of the indie filmmaking ecosystem should they try and transform to make more profitable films? That is a really good question. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And it's and it's one about the uh, the changing nature of, of indie films with um, Web3. So Web3 is the sort of latest collection of, of um, technologies that we have. That is the idea is that you can float around multiple different sites and you still have your own identity and it uses decentralized technology and blockchain and things like that, NFTs. Um, and it's uh, one of those worlds where so much stuff is all messy and noisy, but some things will emerge from it that will be foundational in the future. You know, some, most of the uh, stuff will become pets.com and some of the things will become amazon.com. So it's not yet clear which bits are going to be really important to uh, filmmaking, but we can already see some of the things that these new technologies can do will be very, very useful to the film ecosystem. So one of the things is the blockchain allows transparency and, and you know, people can see, for example, how much money um, the film is made and so it can and all the money can be given automatically to all of the people that are owed stuff so in theory if the Bohemian Rhapsody writer were using a platform for decentralized uh, royalties payments uh, it would in th- this is the theoretical sort of sci-fi future uh, as long as it had all been coded correctly and everyone agreed how it had been coded 
uh, when he he didn't receive his five percent, he would know that the the money wasn't put in the end. It wasn't that people sort of stole it or didn't tell him the information, mm. um, or it would protect him and make sure he did get the money. Um, I think all these things is the same problem, which is that it's not really the technology that's the problem; it's the people. Um, and so, in in any case, not so much that case, but in, in any case, you don't know whether it's one party who didn't understand the rules or the other person who's nobbling the money as it comes in. Who knows? But the technology isn't necessarily going to fix that. But the idea is, at least if it's a bit more transparent, it's easier to do it. Um, it's also the idea of one of the core ideas is that we can decentralize control. So we can have lots of people voting on what should get made. And also, um, we're not having a small number of people at the top who can... I mean, if you wanted, if you wanted to be sort of really, like, really find an exact example of what's wrong with the system that we have at the moment, you might look at someone like Harvey Weinstein, who has. There's so few people have so much power that when you get people in who want to manipulate it, they can successfully do so for decades. Mm. Whereas the idea of decentralization and voting and things like that is that you can't really have a small number of people uh, doing terrible things, but also they can't project their taste. You know, it becomes what everybody wants. Um, but there's, and so I, I think that's great. Um, the The problem is that none of it's emerged yet to solve any of the real problems in the film industry, because, the, the, like I said, they're human problems, most of them. But also because anything that's a problem for one side is a, probably a success for the other. So this, you, we, we might say, look, the the um, return the, the royalties system is broken because people like this writer say that they are not being paid what they owed. In that case. Uh, the studios are winning, and so the studios would be the, have to be the people that would have to agree to something like this. And why would they? Because it's a zero sum game. If someone's losing, someone else is gaining. So I don't know if that will solve it. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are also I, I was, I'm reading up about some of these things. So decentralized pictures is, uh, which is their um, acronym is DCP, which is very confusing because there is already a DCP in the film industry is digital cinema print. So why they couldn't come up with a different acronym, I don't know. But anyway, um, that's just a little bugbear as someone who's a pedant. Like, oh, now i got to learn what these two different acronyms would have to be. Um, but what that specifically is, is a block ta- blockchain film financing mechanism where people basically can vote um, on which projects get money and which don't. And it's all in the blockchain so that it's all quite transparent. Um, and it is a charity and it is also, uh, it's a non-profit, which is, basically a tax-exempt charity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has some significant names behind it. So this is one of the more reputable version of this, and it might be the one one of the first ones that works, who knows. But generally, there's lots of things about this, this new future that's a bit uncertain at the moment, like just how democratic and decentralized all of this stuff is, um, and also how important what we're voting on is. Mm-hmm. Some of these ones want to say you can vote on costumes. And, and, and like we were saying before about the set design, what... What really works at the moment in film and TV is that you have really talented people who spend their life's works doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, the person who does the wig is doing nothing but wigs. Uh, and the person doing the, you know, the set is doing just that. And the director is the person who is making it all work together. You know, she's making sure it all ties up into one vision. So the idea that suddenly getting everyone to vote on that, oh, no. I'm not convinced that makes it better. No. Um, and I've often found when I'm creating my shows, I mean, I know it's very different, but when you're trying to please everyone, it ends up not pleasing anyone because it just ends up being wishy-washy and not the direction you wanted to go and not your... I don't know. I think I think it's, yeah, interesting, but... It I is, it's not, it but it's not really well solving the problem, is it? Everyone's on the same page. 
Yeah, no, I agree. And, and but the thing is, what what are we actually solving there? Because mm. I don't think that's a problem. I think that having I and mean, we've got to make sure that the right people are getting in through meritocracy. But ultimately, mm-hmm. having some people being the director and some people being the costume designer is a, probably a good thing. Mm. Um, but but there's no doubt that the studios don't necessarily make the best content and don't necessarily make the content that everybody's happy with. So mm. in theory, decentralization like that could work. Um, I think the really hard thing is that there's just not much profit really sloshing around. There's a lot of money moving around the film industry, like a lot. Mm-hmm. But most of the projects are not profitable. And the ones that are are the ones that are made a bit more, you could either say cynically or professionally, but, you know, mm-hmm. Disney is very good at making a profit. Um, and so when we have these new schemes that are designed to sort of fix, quote unquote, something, I don't think they're fixing something that's broken. And so I don't think there is going to be much profit. So if you find that people are, putting money and thinking oh we'll make more profit or we'll find the profitable films that the industry is overlooking Mm. i don't think they're going to do that because i don't think they exist as much as people like to think they do um film is a very expensive medium and most films don't really have an audience and therefore most films lose most of their money um yeah but you know if it's for art or you know if it's a if it's trying to get people everyone to sort of get involved and have fun then then great this is a great mechanism for it um so yeah, it, when, so in answer to your question about you know what kinds of things should we be trying to do and, and transform the industry, I think it's important for us all to think about what we're trying to achieve. Uh, if it's to fix a, te- a problem, make sure it actually fix a problem that everyone agrees is a problem. But if it's designed to create different works of art and different ways of acting, then that's great. We just can't confuse that with profitability because I think the industry is actually quite efficient at making money. It's just not a lot of money to make overall, I think. Hmm, what do you think of that, Patrick Quinn? lovely screenwriter with your clever question um do if you guys have any questions then do remember you can just uh pop them in an email uh send them to showmethemoneypod at gmail.com that's showmethemoneypod at gmail.com and um Stephen will answer he might not give you the answer you want to hear but he'll answer um (laughs) Thank you so, so much for listening uh, once again. And if you do like Show Me The Money, then do give it a follow in your podcast app and leave us a review and a rating if you have time. Um, That's it. We'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.